0: A start on demand. on demand. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on a Friday morning. And normally on Fridays, we have, we like to have fun as much as we can all week long. But Fridays, we just throw in a, a sprinkling more, a, an extra dash of fun. And we're still going to endeavor to have some fun today, as we always do. But as you heard in Jeff Braun's newscast, this weekend marks... Uh, a very important and difficult anniversary. Uh, that would be tomorrow, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And the comment that was made in Jeff's newscast was, you know, it was 20 years ago, but it still feels like yesterday. And when uh, I, we got the, the heads up, hey, by the way, don't forget, 20 years this Saturday, I thought, Greg, 20 years
1: it's one of those events, depending on your age, uh, most of us up and listening this morning or most of us gathered here this morning on CJOB remember exactly where they were when they heard about that first plane and the whole questions about was it a private plane, what exactly happened. Uh, and then most of the world, I think, was watching on live television when that second plane hit Lorraine and you realized, oh my God, i this was not an accident the first time around. This is absolutely on purpose, and the world changed dramatically uh, in those uh, in those early hours of September eleventh, two thousand one.
2: The fact that it was intentional, I th- think, is what kept going through the minds of many. Is this happening? Like somebody meant to do this? This was this was an act of terror that we learned quickly afterwards. But, you know, in those first few moments, you're thinking this has to have been an accident. This couldn't have been someone meaning to kill all these people. And then the, the buildings went down and you think what happened there? Was there another explosion? And I don't think I'd... Uh, time has gone by since for me personally where I haven't looked at so many things differently including just when a plane flies overhead it makes you think twice about so many things um, from travel to how you view things to the fact that there's that kind of evil in the world and so we will reflect on that several times throughout the day because it it's not just about where we were and what we were doing and how we were feeling but all that has changed since and so I think for our Friday, Brett, you've hit it right. You know, we have to pause and, and really look back on this and look ahead to what we hope to have learned and do better.
0: Also, do you guys remember that day? And I, I it may have happened elsewhere in my lifetime, but it's the only time I can remember the Winnipeg Free Press and the Winnipeg Sun publishing uh, a late-day special edition. And uh, I still have both of them. I ran out cuz I was working that day and I and I somebody said hey the free press is out next it was like on the street corner they were selling papers so I ran out and got this special edition free press and I got the special edition Winnipeg Sun and I've got them in a box with several other magazines from 911 but do you Greg has that ever happened in your lifetime outside of that? No,
1: I don't ever recall that happening. Now, of course, in the day, uh back in the early 80s, all the way and through until I think the Winnipeg Sun came to town, the newspaper was something that you got delivered at home in the afternoon. So I think they printed an early edition to be out in the in the boxes in the newspaper boxes in the morning and then there would be a a, a print edition in the afternoon with more substantial news that you would deliver and your papers wouldn't get delivered till two thirty, three 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then you would deliver them and hopefully have all your paper route done by four 4.00 o'clock or 4 30 so that is the only time i ever remember that happening brett
0: okay
2: Thank- Keeping in mind, you know, it's when you think back twenty years, we didn't have the phones we have today. So that information, like that, was part of the problem. If you couldn't be at next to a TV, or Google it as quickly, and even then, that that was a newsroom where we had one computer with the internet back in two thousand. One Right. And so you couldn't go on your phone to see what the heck was happening. And so getting that information out, getting it on radio, getting um Global National that day went, you know, 24 hours straight, which it never had done before because it, it had just launched a few days earlier. I mean, there was no way to find out what was going on if you couldn't be near your TV. So that's a good point, Brett. I had forgotten that they had done that.
0: I should have brought those in for you to have a look at, Mackling. I'll remember to bring those in uh, next week. So we will discuss this more at 6.45. And at 7 o'clock, producer Cal Milroy, who makes wonderful montages, has put one together, and we will hear that at 7.07. And and then we're going to talk about this in more depth in our next segment, but we just got to quickly – how did I put this on the schedule here? The real debate last night was what to watch. Politics, tennis – Or the NFL, Greg.
1: And I was jockeying between all three, but uh, (laughs) I settled mostly on the tennis as Leila Fernandez uh, made Canada proud again, heading to the finals at the U.S. Tennis Open. Absolutely an incredible night of tennis. What an accomplishment uh, for this young woman. The story around her is absolutely fascinating. And we'll get into that a little bit later this morning and, and what this means for Canadian tennis. And a big match this afternoon as a, Canadian man uh, Felix auger Aliasim goes uh, into the semifinals today. I think it's three o'clock our time. Trying to make it a, a one-two combination in the men's and women's finals in New York. It's uh, absolutely fantastic, and to see Canadian tennis on center stage the way it's been, Loren, this week. the The crowd was decidedly yeah. behind Layla last I, night.
2: I almost felt bad um, for her opponent because she the nineteen she's she had the whole stadium cheering for it felt seemed like and I thought oh wow that's so interesting that they've just decided to get in your corner but maybe it's a bit of her storyline and and how they're following that and I think people love to get behind um Someone who nobody who commented even. One of the comment commenters last night said, "I didn't know she was this good." And I thought, "Oh wow, that's fascinating." That even the experts watching the game were like blown away by her. So yeah, that was no debate for me. I stuck with tennis for longer than I intended before, before and into the debate. And then I went back and forth. And then then I was sad that I stuck with the debate. So.
0: <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Jeff Fortier is here, Cameron Poitras, Sir Camelot is here, and right now we we'd like to have a lot of fun in this segment, uh, but today we thought we would just try to scale that back a little bit and do some reflection here because tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9/11, so we want we would love for you to weigh in at 204-780-6868 where were you on 9/11 and we do have uh Gordon Lightfoot tickets to give away at 9:15 um and uh we were wondering Greg and I were wondering is it weird to associate this with a contest but you know we're still your participation is appreciated and we want to reward that participation so feel free to weigh in uh i was asleep when it first happened because i was working at a call center at that time and i was working the 3 to 11 shift and I took the the bus to and fro downtown, so I didn't get home till after midnight, and I probably was up until 2 or 3, so I usually slept till noon. And the uh, phone rings at about 8.30, and it's my dad calling from work, and he says, are you up? I said, no, of course not. And he says, well, you better, you should turn the TV on. So I turned the TV on, and I just sat there in... in disbelief as to what was happening i didn't quite understand what was happening and at the time i don't think they understood what was happening and then i i fell back asleep uh for i guess probably about a half hour later and then when i woke up shortly after 10 the towers had fallen and uh that's and i knew right then this this is going to change everything mackling
1: Yeah, it changed the world, no question, how we traveled, how we viewed uh, America's place in the world, most uh, definitely, and the way you felt when you traveled to America was different. I had just spent uh, three and a half weeks in the United States, crossed the border at the beginning of July, and the only question they asked me coming into the United States on, it would have been uh, Canada Day, was whether or not I had any fresh fruit or vegetables in my camper trailer. And where was I going and what I, was I going to be doing? And then crossing back into Canada almost a month later, where you been for the last month? I've been watching baseball games. Welcome home. That was basically the extent of it. And everything changed after 9-11. I was at my mom's. I was in, actually in a really bad place in my life personally. And my baby sister woke me up. At quarter to eight, because she knew I would be fascinated. And I had remembered, Loren, that uh, a, a plane had actually crashed into the Empire State Building in, in the 1940s. In 1945, I believe it was, it was a, a actually a, a bomber, uh, a U.S. Air Force bomber, but it was on a foggy day. Uh, but that was the common theory leading up until about eight o'clock our time and then 803 the second plane struck i was watching good morning america and you saw the second plane come into the picture frame and you went before it even hit is that another oh my god it is another plane and almost instantaneously you realize that that none of
3: this was an accident
0: jeff braun were you working here that day I
3: was working at CJOB that day. I wasn't on the air or behind the control board like Mr. Forche is right now. I was doing some other behind-the-scenes technical work, and I woke up that morning and turned on CJOB, and just as I was about to get into the shower, uh, got that first bulletin that said, and all the information was was that a plane had hit World Trade Center and I got into the shower and I guess I assumed it was like a little Cessna or something like that and I remember I remember thinking to myself now how could a a guy flying a Cessna miss the tallest building in you know in North America how could they not see it and then by the time I got out of the shower we were saying a plane has hit the other Trade Center Tower and that's when I realized well I better get to work because I think we are about to have a one hell of a day and we surely did I I spent most of my day actually putting uh, newscasts together for power 97 so because a lot of the you know djs the rock djs didn't really know how to deliver grim news like that so i helped those guys out with that that was that was basically my day on nine
2: eleven.
0: and loren you were working were you at global at the time
2: yeah it was my uh, i had been with global for about a year and um I was on my way to work and the TV was on because I would put the news on in the morning. And I, this is the same kind of feeling like you think this has to be an accident and you're thinking small plane and then you realize commercial plane. By the time I got to work, uh, the second plane had already hit and then the towers fell. And just that, the staggering disbelief with jaws, I think mouths were open everywhere, just staring at the television thinking what, like what on earth is happening? And that was the picture the whole day. I think we, Anyone in the industry probably worked through the night. It was well past midnight by the time I got home because I was sent to the airport at night where the planes were grounded and and people were being pulled off the planes and they had sat in the tarmac for hours and then they were put on buses and then they were brought to 17 Wing and then some were brought to hotels and there was just all this confusion and frustration and sadness. And it gets back to the idea there was no way for people on that plane to check their phones. That wasn't a thing. There was no smartphones. They had no clue what was going on and and beyond being told that something terrible had happened. And that was just that day, moment after moment, minute after minute, people were just gathering around TVs because that was the only way to get, or their radio, to get their information. You didn't have that phone to turn to. And I think that I, I cannot forget all the different spaces I walked into where people were either in their cars with their jaws dropped listening to the radio or were around a TV just over and over and over again thinking, no, like this cannot be true.
0: Fortress, uh, you and Fortier are younger than us. So you would have been what? Ten? Uh, I was
4: eleven. Yeah, grade five. Uh, yeah, I was th- ten. Okay. Well, I, I was. I was eleven. Whatever. <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I didn't even find out until I got to school. Um, my dad was notorious for waking, and he would drive us into school, and he was notorious for waking up at the last minute. And so uh, he was driving us in. We weren't even listening to the radio. And I got into school, and uh, my friend Randy. Looked at me and he said, "Oh, did you hear about what happened with the plane?" And I went, "Ah, planes crash all the time." And I just went about my day. And then my teacher, Miss Abraham, in grade five, she was kind of in front of us, and then she started explaining what had happened. And I was completely oblivious. Now I look back, and I'm very thankful I didn't see the plane uh, hit the building. I, I just, why would I want to see something like that? So of course I've seen it a million times on, uh, you know, on re, on replays on television and stuff like that. But I'm glad I didn't watch it uh, live. Uh, but it was like, there's days like, I, I couldn't tell you any other day in, from grade five, but I can tell you what happened that exact day. Uh, they, we went, they sent us outside. They had no idea what to do with us that day at school. And so they sent us outside. We were just running around and there was planes uh, flying overhead. And of course, we were just kids and we were worried about what was going on. Um, but yeah, real, just a really weird, weird day. And uh, yeah, stuck... I'll always remember, no matter, I, don't th- I think it doesn't matter how old you are, you're, you're going to remember that day.
0: and Mike says, I made a delivery at the North Tower just before the first impact. As I was leaving, I thought it was a gang fight going on, and I was out of there. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, in a moment, we are going to hear a montage from producer Kyle as we get ready to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we just heard from Trucker Mike, who says he made a delivery at the North Tower right before the first impact. And Greg, I see a text here from Don. He was also not far away.
1: Yeah, he says he had just delivered in the morning of 9-11 in the Bronx. I was on the Jersey side. When when the attack happened, the company sent me empty to Montreal at about 4 p.m. I got to the border and U.S. Customs was checking every truck leaving. It was three hours to get into Canada. The next day was dispatched to Illinois. The border lineup was 15 miles long. Every truck was put under a microscope at the border. All were unloaded and visually inspected. All drivers were grilled at length. The whole process took three days for me to drive 15 miles and cross the border. Now trucks and drivers are subject to x-ray inspections.
0: I understand yeah. that Trucker Mike is willing to join us, so let's bring him on in our next segment if we can, Lauren.
2: I'll shoot him a text. I'm sure he's listening. I just got off the phone with him, and so uh, we'll hear what he has to say. And in the meantime, I think we, if we look back, it's important to remember what people were feeling and thinking that day, Brett. And uh, let's uh, hear from Kyle Milroy. That is the World Trade Center. Apparently, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York.
5: It, it,
6: it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now, remember, oh my God! Oh my God! My... That looks like a second plane has yeah. just, I just met... I see a plane go in. That that just exploded. I... We just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did that was out of the my Yes, and that's you. the second explosion. You could see the plane.
5: Feeling small.
0: Very, very quickly,
7: there are more explosions further down the building.
5: This is so shocking, of course, to everybody watching.
4: I- I've never
5: seen anything like it. It literally blew itself into
8: World Trade Center. I heard the sound of a jet. Um, I assumed it was like a, you know, a navy jet or something like that, just flying by. And we heard a big bang, and then we saw smoke coming out, and everybody started running out, and we saw the plane on the other side of the building, and there was smoke everywhere. Friends just can't be found like a breeze. large explosion. I thought it was a sonic boom. And when I heard the explosion, I looked up, and what I saw was I saw red, and I saw I actually started to, saw debris start to fall down.
5: Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts.
0: When you're down and out,
8: when you're on the street take airplanes when we're supposed to for business or pleasure. We're going to uh, go to public events, and we're going to do the things that we normally would do. The best way to get your children to stop being afraid is to stop being afraid yourself.
6: I'll take you a day unlike any other in the long course of American history, a terrorist act of war against this country.
7: President Bush saying today that freedom has been attacked by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended.
8: Like a bridge over time.
0: Thank you very much to producer Kyle Milroy for putting together that montage. And at 8.37, uh, Loren, we're going to check in now with somebody who works uh, in the Industry and uh, has some uh, unique insight into this.
2: Yeah, it works in the airline industry. We talk. We're going to talk about how you know, trucking and borders and everything changed, but so did everything with flight. And in that, the, the the audio that just stuck out for me there was the line that said, "The best way to show your kids you're not afraid is you know to get out there." There was that fear, uh, and just thinking back and reflecting back on that, how that changed everything for years with just going places and and getting on planes and how you felt about that. So we'll we'll check in with Barry Remple of. The Winnipeg Airport Authority at eight thirty.
1: Dave says he'll never forget nine eleven. They were restoring the legislative building that year, and we were working at night, uh, right at the top, on the electrical heat tracing cables for the eaves troughs around the dome when we got the news over the two way radios. It was only moments later. A co-worker noticed a huge jumbo jet descending from the sky and then other and then multiple other small planes in the sky. It was almost surreal to see so many being grounded in Winnipeg. We sat legs dangling over the scaffolding watching the sky about 20 minutes just in awe of what we were seeing. We soon got called down to the main floor where we walked into a small lunchroom where everyone was literally packed, sitting in silence, watching the news unfold. And that's a big story of the of 9-11 on the Canadian side of the border are and was all the American aircraft that came to our communities, the the hundreds and the thousands of people that were, uh, were billeted were that stayed here for several days before they could uh, resume their journeys, either home or elsewhere.
0: Mackling, McGarry and McNabb in our previous half hour, we read a text message from trucker Mike who said that he had just made a delivery at the North Tower just before the first impact. As I was leaving, Mike says, I thought it was a gang fight going on, and I was out of there. Trucker Mike has uh, graciously graciously agreed to join us so, so we could ask him some more questions. Trucker Mike, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So you were making the delivery at the North Tower. You say you thought there was a gang fight going on. What was going on?
9: Well, when the, when the first plane hit, the impact sounded like a 50-millimeter round going off hitting concrete, and I thought, nope, I'm not sticking around here. I'm gone.
1: Are we allowed to ask you what you were delivering to the North Tower, Mike?
9: Uh, I think it was just uh, general freight for office supplies of that type of nature, maybe some furniture, that type of stuff. I can't recall the exact... Uh, the exact freight that was on the trailer
1: was that a regular route for you? Uh, how often did you go to New York, and and how does that impact you? You know what you see, and and you, you realize you're you're in the middle of of the largest uh, happening in North America in, in a long, long time.
9: Well, that was the second time I've ever been to New York City. I've not been there ever since, um, and it's I've never at that time I was not on any regular routes whatsoever. And as for the impact of the largest event, at the time, I didn't even know what was happening. It was more, I, did, I, I noticed it when I stopped a few hours north of New York City, heading towards Canada. And then all of a sudden, I saw Americans going after East Indians, thinking that they're the cause of the problem.
2: Like You saw fight breaks out. I know there was so much racial targeting and, and people being blame being pointed and that anger was so immediate and wrong uh, Mike but un- understandable in terms of just the emotions people were feeling at the time and, and so then when you learned that a plane, two planes had hit two t- both towers that the towers went down and you had just been there do you, have you stopped and thought about how close of a call that was for you?
9: I was just thankful I wasn't in the middle of it at like when they were coming down Because if that, the yeah, I try not to think of what could have happened because that that would have just been, that would have been too hard to even even fathom the thought of if that tower came down on me during the delivery
0: itself. Well, Trucker Mike, we appreciate that you took the time to text us your experience and that you took some time to tell us about it. We appreciate it, and we're glad that you were able to get out of there before the worst happens. So thank you for talking to us today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. And Liz Carpenter uh, texting us also with uh, painting an interesting picture. She was a department manager at Walmart, and we we heard the news. I think the whole store ended up in electronics, watching it on TV, and everyone was stunned. You could just hear a pin drop. (laughs) You know what, you've been playing some new stuff recently, and uh, I commend you for that. But then you went back to the well with something that you're not good at, so like... I had to wet the old reed, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, by the way, uh, Loren, Fortig cut all his hair off.
2: What? Yeah. Why?
0: Why, Jeff? Why don't you tell us? Because I wanna look good.
8: <laughs> my my hair was terrible
2: before.
0: Yeah, but you wanted to look good for
8: the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> there it is. All
0: right. So that horrible music heralds the arrival of the couch potatoes, the assemblage of the couch potatoes. Hello there, Jeff Braun. Good morning. All right. So we're gonna start with something I think that's really special that's coming to Apple TV Plus. That's it's arrived on Apple TV Plus as we mark the 20th anniversary. It's the debut of a filmed version of the Canadian smash hit musical Come From Away.
4: On the northeast tip of North America is a town
5: called Gander.
10: September 11th, 2001.
5: Over 200 planes getting diverted.
10: Even without the hotel's in town, we've
5: got no room. Um, With thousands of passengers arriving at any minute, the town is asking for help with, well, anything you can do.
0: We barely know where we are. Just freaking out, I wish I was home.
5: Thank you for shopping at Walmart. Would you like
1: to come back to my house for a shower?
0: As you may recall, after the attacks, the airspace was shut down and all those planes had to go somewhere. So suddenly, the town of Gander, Newfoundland, a community of 9,000 people, had 7,000 stranded passengers. And this show is the story of how Gander took them all in. And through that uplifting story, Canadians Irene Sankoff and David Hine, they've created just a miraculous musical that's become an international sensation. Greg, you and I had the the pleasure and privilege of interviewing Uh, Sankoff and Hein when the show came to the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre back in early 2018.
1: And I don't think either of us, at least I'll speak for myself, realized what greatness we were in the presence of because this show was incredibly powerful. It's been an international sensation, a Broadway sensation, and the emotion that it evoked just listening to that 25 seconds or so of... Of audio, Brett, uh, uh, my spine is tingling again. I'm right back at the Royal MTC the night that we saw it, and uh, I'm on the verge of tears. It was, It is such a powerful play.
0: Yeah. Loren, did you have the opportunity to see it?
2: No, I haven't, and I'm sorry I didn't, but I I am glad that there's going to be a chance for me to see it in another way here.
0: Yeah, and I concur with Greg. It's uh, the emotion, it it was emotional overload, inspirational, funny, tragic, sad. The music was amazing, the performances were wonderful. Uh, I was basically in tears the whole time because I was just so overwhelmed in such a good way. So if you want to watch something uplifting, that celebrates the best of what human beings are capable of, even in the face of true horror. Watch Come From Away on Apple TV+, Plus, which means I need a new streaming service subscription. Hooray! Hello? Yes,
1: it's me. Dad, I'm okay.
4: We honor what was lost, but we also commemorate what we found.
0: Now, Jeff Braun, you say that you have a program that you uh, often revisit around 9-11. Yeah, it's a documentary I have on
3: DVD simply called 9-11 and they do show it on TV quite often as well and I would imagine it will be on one channel or another tomorrow. Uh, It's hard to search for something titled 9-11, but if you can find it it's definitely worth a watch. It follows this one specific fire company in Manhattan through their day responding to the Twin Towers and it was really a case of blind luck because these two French brothers were already making a documentary about one of their friends who was a firefighter in that company, so the camera's already rolling before the first plane hit and they caught I think maybe the only footage of that is certainly the most clearest footage of that and then they were the first emergency crew to arrive at ground zero while it was happening it's a powerful documentary as you can imagine and like I said it's often on tv so if you can find it I highly recommend watching it
0: it is simply just called 9-11. Nine Eleven, and I would also, as far as movies go, a movie came out not long after nine eleven called United ninety three from director Paul Greengrass. Uh, that's the plane that went down in uh, Pennsylvania, was it, Greg? Yes. Think, um, that it didn't make it to its target because the the passengers rose up and fought back. And it's uh, it's sorry, I'm getting emotional thinking about this stuff. Anyway, yeah. <clears throat> um. So that's uh, come from away Apple TV Plus. Jeff's documentary, United 93. We do have to quickly mention uh, something that had me super excited yesterday.
8: After all these years, to be going back to where it all started, back to the Matrix.
0: Yes! The Matrix! Forgive my excitement. The Matrix Resurrections trailer debuted yesterday. And I, <laughs> I debuted right at eight a.m. and I was on it right at eight a.m. here in the studio, uh, under sp- instructions to Greg and Loren: don't talk to me for three minutes. Yeah. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, run! Uh, I know I'm crazy about this stuff, but you're excited yeah. too, right?
3: I, I am excited. I'm always excited for a good movie, and I'm looking forward to rewatching all the other Matrixes. I've seen the first one many times, but I haven't seen those other two more than I think the one time I saw them in the theater and honestly I can't even remember what happens in them so I'm excited for the little marathon I'll have to go on there but Brett aren't you a little bit afraid uh what if it sucks what if Matrix 4 is no good
0: it can't it just it has oh, to be good that's a it has to be good. They can They wouldn't come back to do it twenty years later if it was bad. Yeah, they,
3: they wouldn't. They wouldn't come back to do another Indiana Jones for twenty years later if it was bad either. So, <laughs>
0: okay, fine, <laughs> fine. You're right. Such a crusher, <laughs> Jeff Bron. Just, just keep that five percent in the back of your head, there, Brett. Just worry about it for four months. <laughs> fine. The movie comes out December twenty second, and uh, Lorraine, are you have you taken the kids to see Shang Chi yet?
2: No. I haven't. I I, uh, I can't decide, you know, what is appropriate to let them watch. So, no, I haven't done any of it yet. I'm sticking with the boss baby type stuff right now.
0: Bron, you, you have a better uh, radar of, for that stuff. Would uh, Shang-Chi be appropriate for kids under the age of 10?
3: Um under the under 10 yes under 7 maybe not there's a couple of maybe things that are too intense and I I noticed there was quite a bit more cursing than you usually get in the Marvel movies no no f bombs or anything dramatic like that but some of them the minor league swears showed up a lot more often than I was expecting
0: Anyway, we both loved the movie. We're gonna—you can yeah. get the review in our podcast. It's available now, and the Couch Potatoes airs Saturdays at noon and Sundays typically at six. Although I guess, ooh, what time's the pregame show for the Banjo Bowl start tomorrow, Greg? One o'clock. Oh, perfect. So the Couch Potatoes—see, the the, the the Bob Irving's—I uh, hope he's thankful. He's he's lucky. He's got the yeah. Couch Potatoes as the lead, in <laughs> <laughs> so ought to bring the ratings AO up. Subs-
1: <laughs> yeah, the ratings should be up substantially for the game tomorrow. <laughs>
0: Mackling McGarry McNabb, we want to read for you something thought-provoking out of Alberta as it pertains to smoking and the quitting of smoking. It's uh, sort of following a story that uh, Greg shared yesterday. But before that, uh, we got a couple more 9 11 texts that we want to quickly share here, Greg.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And Daryl says he was crossing the border at Emerson with a load of rescue horses on his way to Greensburg, Pennsylvania, about 50 miles from where the passengers forced down the third plane. I had no idea what was going on when I got to the brokers at the border. And they were all crying. They told me, but I didn't believe them what was going on until I heard it on the radio. I unloaded the next morning and didn't realize I was that close to the down plane until I got home.
0: And, Loren, uh, do you see Kat and Gimli's text here?
2: I do not, but give me a second. I apologize here, guys. I'm just um, reading through so many texts from people with what they were feeling that day. is is really uh, hitting home with me this morning because I think it's amazing 20 years later just how... Much people are still bothered by this. Um. It's Cat in sc- oh, it. said, I can't specify where I was except to say I was answering the phones in an official capacity. I fielded questions from civil and military organizations, local, regional, and national safety and emergency groups. Cat goes on to say they were all looking for information on resources and installations owing to the need to get all planes over Canadian airspace on the ground and passengers and crews safely accounted for. In between calls, we listened to the radio to try to stay updated suffused with horror and disbelief. None of us wanted to go home in case those three planes were not all of it and that Canadian targets might be next. Yeah, that was, I I remember hearing that from people thinking like, well, what about, what will be next? Where, Where will things go? Is this like a concerted worldwide effort of attacks? And so I think that fear was very real.
0: So feel free to continue to share your stories at 204-780-6868. We appreciate them all. Thank you very much. Right now, we want to take a couple minutes to share this post. Greg found it on Twitter, of course. Uh, you know, we we call it the Twitter light bombardment every day. Uh, I, I look forward to it. I don't really need Twitter. I just have Greg. Uh, but this from Twitter, Greg, you found this post from a Canadian senator.
1: Well, actually, I'll give the credit to my dad. He sent it to me. And it's from Paula Simons, who was appointed to the Senate of Canada in 2018. She was... Humili- may recognize her name she had a long and distinguished career as one of western canada's most acclaimed journalists she has been a radio documentary maker a playwright and an author of popular history but she's best known for her work loren as a political columnist and reporter with the edmonton journal
2: so this is what the shared story is my mother was a smoker a dedicated, passionate smoker. She wasn't just an addict. She loved the coolness of smoking. She loved cigarettes as fashion accessories. She loved... I, I don't know this word, guys. The, the conviviality. Conviviality of hanging out with other smokers. And for years, she would not quit. Nothing would convince her. Her children begged her. Her non-smoking husband controlled her. She was not a stupid woman. She read the news. She understood the science, but she would not give up smoking. It helped to define her policies.
0: Then... She goes on to say her friends and family started dying in their early 50s of smoking-related diseases, heart attacks, strokes, lung cancer, her best friend, her favourite cousin. I thought that might change her mind. It did not. I had a baby, her first grandchild, a baby she adored. I told my mother she could not smoke in my house if the baby was present. Did this convince her to quit smoking? It did not.
1: Well, what did make her quit? Edmonton's smoking bylaw... When my mother could no longer smoke in restaurants and stores and malls and theater lobbies. When she could no longer go to the places she loved. Then, and only then, did she quit. Scientific information didn't convince her. Watching people she loved die didn't do it. Being isolated from family didn't do it. What finally pushed her to act was being denied access to restaurants and shops and other public places when smoking became maximally inconvenient.
2: Paula goes on to say, so that's a story about my mom and about the perplexities of human psychology and human motivation. Maybe you'll find enough parallels to find a parable. Maybe not but I wanted to share it today as Alberta charts its future course.
0: Some food for thought. Greg, thank you very much for sharing that. And Loren, conviviality, by the way, as defined by Google's, uh, said the quality of being friendly and lively I slash friendliness. Yeah, it's a fun word to say, the conviviality.
2: It, I I looked at that and just thought there was a full-on typo.
0: I thought there was
1: a movie called that, Miss <laughs> <Ms>. Conviviality.
2: Miss <laughs> <Ms>. con- <laughs> Conviviality. I thought it was conniving or convincing or con <laughs> Conversion, but I did not think that was a word. So there you go.
0: Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us today on The Start. A couple of weeks back, I declared my anger towards the federal election and how I would very much like to be able to decline my ballot, to be able to walk in there and say, thank you for this ballot, and now I give it back to you because you can stuff it. Or at least vote for, you know, something like none of the above. Uh, that's just my opinion. I don't claim to speak for anyone else. But I know I'm not alone in my frustration, Greg.
1: I know often I have felt frustrated about the options before me. I, When we had this discussion, I very much said I'm tired of picking between the lesser of two or three or four or five evils. And many Canadians might be wondering, why are we doing this again in the federal system There's no formal way to decline your ballot, but it has us wondering, would it be practical to add a none of the above option on the ballot? So our voices, those of us who want to be part of the process, but are feeling discontent, Loren McNabb can have a say also.
2: I feel like you're yelling at me. Your discontent is with me this morning, but I know there's just frustration with the system that's in place. And there's lots of voters that feel that way. So at 637, we, played a feature from Global News reporter Tristan Field-Jones, and he asked that very question about the the none-of-the-above option, and Tristan joins us now live. How's it going, Tristan? Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time of putting this together because lots of people have been expressing uh, the same feelings Brett has been about you know, wanting to be part of the process but not liking their choices. So what did you learn as you dug into this?
8: Well, and I think it's, it's worth noting that when I did this piece, I spoke with a uh, political science professor, a political expert at the University of British Columbia who studied elections. He's really looked into this sort of thing. And one of the things I learned is that A none of the above option, and this is according to Richard Johnston, may not be as good of an idea as we think. I've got a quick clip here just summarizing, you know, his argument in terms of why he thinks that would necessarily be a great option.
7: Elections are about choosing governments. That's the bottom line. We should not be in the business of encouraging people to engage in kind of throw away cheap talk. We should be encouraging people to make the substantive choice and to do whatever minimal research you need to do, including perhaps just investigating your own values. You can just ask yourself, am I a conservative kind of person? Am I a liberal kind of person?
8: And act accordingly. So Johnston argues that if we allow a none of the above option on the ballot, that, that may encourage a certain portion of the population, potentially a fair number of voters, to do zero research, to just show up, tick a box and leave. And, and he and his perspective on that is that doesn't really result in kind of engaged democracy, if you will. But I know for sure, you know, Greg, you and I, we got into quite a discussion yesterday Uh, about this and uh, you know correct me if I'm wrong but you kind of see it a little differently
1: well yes because close to one-third of eligible voters do not vote at the federal level I think it's imperative that we figure out why is it because they're not willing to do quote-unquote the minimal research I think that was pretty condescending in my opinion um Or is it because people have done the research and it's like, hey, I really don't want to vote for any of these people. I am someone who takes my right, my obligation to vote very seriously. I don't want to not go to the polls. That's not how I want to voice my my unhappiness with the, with the options in front of me. I would like to have an option that speaks loudly and clearly. None of these people speak for me. They do not deserve my vote. It doesn't happen often, but I've been in that situation. And I would uh, just like to have a longer conversation about how is it that all this large percentage of Canadians decide not to vote? I don't think it's because all those people don't
8: care. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's absolutely a fair perspective on that. I was when I did this piece and why when when I interviewed Richard Johnston, I thought it was really interesting his thoughts on this because you know I was I, I think like you said, Greg, we've all been there at some point where we've gone out, we've you know held our nose while indicating something on the ballot, but you know his argument as well is that spoiled ballots, which you do have an option to do if you're really disgusted. You know, they are counted, they are indicated. And and he also argues that, you know, voter turnout on its own is enough of an indicator when it comes to, you know, how many people are participating in democracy. Um, he also kind of uh, here goes through, you know, the, the last couple of decades or so and argues the point that voter turnout on its own is a form of participation. So take a listen. In the 90s, uh,
7: when the party system fractured, in particular the
8: the Conservative
7: side of this the system fractured and reform pushed aside the Conservatives. What that did was basically hand the election to the Liberals. And so for a decade, the Liberals were just going to win the election, period, hands down. And two out of the three times, even with a modest popular vote, they had two of the largest majorities in Canadian history. So people could be forgiven if they didn't think it was worth their while going out to the ballot. The Liberals are just going to win anyway. Then when Mr. Harper stapled the Conservative Party kind of back together, the party system became more competitive again. Turnout went up. But then along comes 2015, and at least temporarily, Justin Trudeau captures a lot of people's hearts. And a lot of people saw a reason to go out and vote. And so turnout in 2015 was as high as it had been for nearly 30 years. Now it slid back down again in 2019 because people were not so enamored of the alternative. You know, you you can see that people are, are making, or at least some number of people, are making a kind of cost-benefit calculation. And, and we've seen, in a sense, the benefit from voting move up and down, partly to do with the competitiveness of the election, partly to do with the attractiveness of the alternative.
8: So again, he's arguing that we shouldn't necessarily discount the low voter turnout or spoiled ballots as people simply not participating he thinks that's still a crucial part of our democratic process
0: tristan field jones thank you very much for joining us sir thanks for putting this uh no doubt award-winning piece together and we if you want to hear it 637 is when we aired it it's in the audio vault at cjob.com and tristan's going to have more on this throughout the day on 680 cjob Ackling McGarry and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. We're asking you to text us, where were you? On 9-11, 20th anniversary is tomorrow, if you can believe that. Just saying the words makes me scratch my head at where the time has gone. uh, Because I know for me, I remember so many parts of that day so vividly, like it happened yesterday. And uh, this listener, Greg, has uh, painted a picture here uh, conveying... Quite the the roller coaster of emotions over the years.
1: Good morning, it says. I've been listening to the show this morning on my way to work, as is my normal routine. I worked in Cheyenne Mountain Operations Centre and had just completed my shift rotation that morning. I went home from my night shift and went to bed not knowing what was going on. I may have had an hour or two of sleep before the phone rang with a friend asking me, what is going on? After we worked through my confusion, I turned on the television and spent the rest of the day watching it and waiting to see if I would be recalled to work. Many years later, my family did a trip to New York and my wife and I went to Ground Zero. I was surprised by the emotion that hit me that day. When the play Come From Away came to Winnipeg, my wife and I went. I wasn't surprised this time that I was emotional, but the depth of the emotions was surprising. This morning's montage on your show tapped into that deep well of emotion yet again. Thank you for remembering and helping us to heal. That's from Brent, and that's the first time Brent's re- reached out to us. So, Brent, thank you very much.
0: We appreciate that very much, Brent. Thank you indeed. And as one of our another one of our listeners texted this morning, Lorraine, twenty years ago, tomorrow marks the day the world stopped.
2: Yeah, I think that's how many people felt after learning. The planes had struck the Twin Towers in New York and then the other uh, attacks after that. And you just weren't sure what to do. I think you, all, everyone stopped and you think, I, you know, where do I go? What do I do next? What's going to change for us? And Dan texted to say, September 11th, I was stationed in Edmonton. And that morning, the base was holding its annual United Way golf tournament. The TV was on in the clubhouse, but nobody was paying attention. We got out for the shotgun start. I think we played about three or four holes when the military police cars drove onto the course, ordering all military personnel back to their place of work. We got back and there was a lot of panic, flinching going on. We had our weapons issued. We were told to pack our kit. No one knew who was responsible yet, but there was a lot of panic, dances.
1: Boy, oh boy. And a month later, of course, Canadian soldiers were off to Afghanistan. Life changed for our military, for anyone crossing the border, air travel... Border travel, ground travel, it all changed. Uh, Barry Rempel is the president and CEO of the Winnipeg Airport Authority and joins us now. Good morning, Barry. Good morning. We've been asking our listeners, we'll ask you the same question. What do you remember about that day? Where were you?
5: Uh, Well, I was actually preparing to move to Winnipeg. Uh, I was still in Calgary at the time, at the airport there. And uh, uh, I think the thing that I will remember the most was uh, after – uh, coming out to the airport hearing the news reports uh, there was a large reader board on the, on the entrance to the airport and it just said all flights canceled until further notice and uh, for an air, for an air, airline airport guy uh, that was a first
0: what happened uh, like did the airports close instantly when the news broke?
5: yeah in fact uh, what happened is uh, and it was a huge team effort uh, between uh, coordinating with NORAD, uh, coordinating with NAV Canada, and our own security uh, personnel. Uh, it was uh, here in Winnipeg, it was accommodating 17 diverted flights, um, finding accommodations for them. Uh, it, it, it was a Team Winnipeg approach, it really was, because uh, I remember uh, phoning and talking to the people here, and, and in fact, uh, WRHA... Uh, and others were sending personnel out to the airport—nurses, doctors, uh, psycho, you know, basically to help people uh, try and cope as they were standing around the airport, watching the the TVs in the airport at the time, trying to understand what happened. And I think that was the thing going through everyone's mind: like, what's this? What's this about? Who did this? Why? Um, lots of questions and no answers uh, on that first morning.
2: Mm. Yeah, Barry. I was saying I was working for Global TV that day, and then into the night, and so we were at I think 17 Wing. There were people were being bussed there uh, from the they were. from across yeah. the tarmac, and then trying to figure out the hotels. and And one of the emotions was anger and frustration because some of the people didn't know. Like they, they just you know they'd been stuck on the plane. You're trying to explain to them what happened, but until you see it, you can't yeah. grasp. Well, why am I not flying? Or what, what? What do you mean, the airports are grounded? I mean, that had. Nothing on that scale had ever happened before in the sense of the impact of shutting every airport down.
5: Uh, true, true. You couldn't say that better. Nothing had ever happened before on that scale ever. Um, you know, there'd been small events, security events, but nothing ever, ever on that scale where, it, it, the first time in history where uh, the the Canada's airspace was completely closed. And uh, in fact, it was the decision was made by, Uh, a Canadian uh, three-star general that was the second-in-command at NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain uh, on that day. Um, Truly nothing ever ever before happened like that. Um, The closest we've probably had ever since, but in a very different way, was COVID. Um, But, uh, no, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, being trucked across or bussed across to um, 17 wing. Uh, I have to tell you, the RCAF here, did a tremendous job of coordinating with us because they have had uh, some accommodations over on the other side. And it was actually a flight from Manila that uh, was uh, sent over to the 17 wings side. Uh, and interestingly, one of the reasons people were panicking angered uh, was that there were no translators. Uh, there were a lot of people on the flight that didn't speak English and um uh, uh you know, from uh, from what I've seen from uh, the records and talking with people here, uh, a lot of people from the Filipino community volunteered to come out and translate for us just to uh, to try and con people to understand that there was, you know, they were safe, they were on the ground, uh, We they would be looked after. And this community truly looked after those people.
1: Yeah, it was a massive community effort to make those folks comfortable and to, and to find accommodation, and uh, was uh, uh, the September fourteenth when things finally got back, uh, planes
5: got back in well, the air. Barry uh, started getting back in the air. Yes. So th- um, it it was uh, it was an instant shutdown, and fortunately for uh, I'll say the industry, it was a fairly quick ramp up. What we call the deep V, uh, where uh, once it had been determined and once what what had happened, who was responsible, and then from there. It was a very different world, though. Um, you know, uh, when we ramped up, there were police and dogs and all kinds of uh, security personnel in the in the airports that day, and then from that day forward, some very different processes.
1: Yeah, I had relayed uh, g- crossing the American border uh, from Canada, uh, July first of t- two thousand one, and then about a month later, coming home after being on an extended trip, and the the difference. Uh, after that is almost mind-blowing, you know, the passports and all the different things now. So what are some of those changes that that remain from well, September 11th in the aftermath of that in terms of aviation and the, the way we yeah. navigate through airports?
5: Well, uh, I mean, for those that don't remember before September 11th, uh, security was basically walking through a metal detector. And the security was done by the airlines at that time the, the biggest change was the nationalization of uh of airport security under what we now know as catsa and uh the canadian air transport security authority uh, and the implementation of new regulations both through catsa and uh, and with airports on everything new baggage screening pr- uh procedures Um, You know, uh, I'm sure many of the the listeners have have even now gone through the new processes, uh, you know, where you're physically scanned uh, using various X-ray machines to see if there's anything, you know, on your person. Um, It's a very different, it's a very uh, new way. It's a risk-based approach, and wherever risk is seen as greater, there's actually a, a variety of uh, security measures that have been implemented that exceed the standard that uh, was even put in that. So it's been an ongoing process. You mentioned traveling across the U.S. border. Uh, candidly, it was, I believe, Bush at the time that worked with Canada to implement what we now know as the smart border process. Uh, incredible uses of technology that just were only dreams, uh, I suppose, of certain security personnel before September 11th are now a reality. Well, when we there... think
2: sorry i just was just going to follow up just on that is there any part of it that has gone back like do we keep every single security measure that was put in place in the airports i know that you know there's been different terrorist attacks since Barry, worth other things have been added you know you check the shoes and all those kinds of things yeah have we is has there been any yeah. of it returned to pre-9-11 times or is it all just been augmented since
5: no it's it's been uh as you say augmented uh throughout and And it has been with every event. You know, uh, what we, I guess, commonly refer to as the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber uh, since then have all layered additional security requirements on top of what happened after September 11th.
0: Barry Rempel is President and CEO of the Winnipeg Airport Authority, joining us live on The Start. Barry, thank you very much for this conversation. We appreciate it.
5: Thank you. It's brought back some unbelievable memories.
0: Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. In our next segment, we are going to give away those Gordon Lightfoot tickets, November 21st. Tickets on sale today, by the way, Club Region Event Center. Uh, based on your amazing and uh, emotional and powerful text messages on nine eleven, where were you on 9-11? Uh, we appreciate... All of the messages, and we're going to try to read as many as we can. But uh, uh, we just we we couldn't possibly have enough time in the world to share them all. And uh, right now, we want to get the, th- the thoughts on that day from a person who every, hey, every Friday morning we visit with one of our colleagues down the hall at Global Winnipeg, Gabrielle Marchand, host of Global News Morning, our weekly Gab with Gabby. But Gabby's off this week, so instead, it's a special edition chat. That we call Gabigail. <laughs> Global's Abigail Turner filling in for Gabby this week. Hi, Abby.
10: Hello. We just have to drop the G. It's super easy.
0: <laughs> it works for works for all of us. So uh, we like to have fun in this segment, Gabby, but, or Abby, but today, t- look at that. But I didn't drop the G. But today we're talking about where you were on 9-11. You were around, but you're 25, right?
10: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't honestly remember the specific day, but I do remember things changing. I remember growing up, uh, my family really crossed the border a lot. We always went to Minot, Minneapolis, and of course you never needed a passport or, or any really type of ID, I guess. And I remember getting older, it got uh, more and more intense and um, not really understanding why or uh, what is causing that. And I remember getting older and and slowly learning the reasons behind that and hearing the stories and kind of putting the pieces together. So I I think even if you're a kid and you don't remember the day, life, life has changed and there's a reason behind that.
2: Yeah, we talked to Barry Rimple, Winnipeg Airport Authority, just at 8.35, uh, Abigail, and he just talked about, you know, what security was like before at airports. And you basically just had to go through like a metal detector and that was it. And now everything has changed. And it's fascinating because I can remember those things. But for you, you kind of grew up into that, that, that there there wasn't a new normal for you. It was just normal.
10: Yeah, that's right. And, and just thinking back to crossing the border again, um, even as simple as having to have a letter, my parents uh, divorced after that point and having to have a letter from the other parent saying that you're allowed to take your child across the border, that was never a thing. And yeah, just kind of um, experiencing that as you grow up is, is, is quite fascinating.
1: Okay, well, let's have a little bit of fun. Not as much fun as we had yesterday at the uh, building barbecue out on Main Street. Uh, Abigail uh, kicked my backside in Connect four out at the barbecue yesterday. But oh, I like uh, that game. what about school supplies? As uh, we talked, you were mentioning uh, being five, uh, not far from uh, starting school. What was your favorite school supply? Loren mentioned reinforcements. Uh, for for your loose leaf right when you yank something out of your out of your binder or your duotang, tang it's like oh you know what actually i want to keep that so i got to put these sticky little circle things <laughs> around in order to put it back in my binder uh, what was your favorite school supply
10: I was kind of an annoying child. I was the kid that had all of the cool pens that were labeled. I loved putting them all in like a specific order, labeling everything, the labeler in general. I was really a precise child. Looking back, maybe there was a bigger issue, but I loved putting everything in order. The pens, the pencils, having my locker, you know, specifically organized on each shelf. I remember that growing up.
0: Gosh. Hey, those are all helpful. I mean, well, now it's now it all makes sense because you're one of the most organized people in this building, right?
10: Oh, I don't
0: know about that. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> so modest. See, we the, do. The, yeah, <laughs> we definitely do. <laughs> we know that if we turn to Abigail Turner for something, it's going to get done. Um, what about stains? We talked about stains, bad stains on your clothes or maybe an embarrassing stain or a stain in your car. Jeff Braun told the story how he had a stain in his apartment floor and he did. To get his damage deposit back, he just had to stand on that spot <laughs> while they did the inspection. So anything jumped to mind for you?
10: I remember um, probably, I don't know, eight years ago, I finally uh, made all this money to buy. I think it was my second car, but, you know, it was a nice car because your first car is not, you know all that nice. So I saved up all this money for a new car, new-to-me car, and I went and picked it up, and I had to go to work. I was waitressing, so I needed something quick, and I think I stopped at Qdoba and got a taco salad, my brand new car, I'm going to work, I'm feeling cool, and I have this taco salad on my lap, and I'm thinking, I just need to you know, scarf this down. And make it to work, and I go to take the first scoop with a big thing of sour cream on the fork. Where does it go? Right in between my legs, onto the seat of my brand new car. So I had this car for five years with this big white crusty <laughs> stain oh my God. on
2: my seat. Why are you eating a salad? Like, who chooses salad? <laughs> have, you, like a, have you been? I, I mean, a don't get me wrong. I don't. I like the salads there. I get it. Those yeah. are great. Like, no, that's the whole reason why I loved Grand Forks before Qdoba finally came to Winnipeg. But in the car? Come on, Eddie. She know. picked a salad because
1: they don't serve uh, cereal, because that would make more sense driving.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
10: if you've been to Qdoba, you know, okay? i didn't
2: going to have this bowl of hot soup while I drive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you say you were serving at the time. You were, uh, why didn't you just eat at
2: work?
10: Because it was a poutine place, and obviously I wanted something a little healthier i guess i don't Again. know oh. these are just
2: all terrible choices You stick with the poutine. you don't <laughs> you have a salad while I'm you just drive. i'm just going to walk disappointed out now. in you <laughs> disappointed uh,
0: oh and before you go uh abigail um you recently had a burger at Tommy's on Cordon, and uh, you gave me some good tips on how to reheat a burger, because that can be a challenge. Yeah, what did you do?
10: This burger was the size of my face, so obviously I couldn't finish it. I had half while I was at the restaurant, and then I had half last night for supper. This is the key. If you are reheating your burger week burger, throw it in the microwave, 30 seconds, flip it on the fly- frying pan, and you're set. You're good to go. You have the warmth and the crispiness.
0: There it is. That's ingenious, because I tried last year and failed miserably to reheat the burger. It was just not the same. Abigail Turner, a.k.a. Gabigail. thank you very much <laughs> for joining us today. Thanks, we appreciate guys. it. <music> Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, thank you very much for participating in our conversation this morning where were you on 9/11 we do want to give away Gordon Lightfoot tickets november 21st club region event center based on your text messages here and um, the the detail that you have shared is uh, as always uh, incredible but uh, today it's just quite frankly awe inspiring uh, Greg, you've, you've been uh, harvesting as many as you can. We, we only have a couple of minutes here. Which one do you want to go with?
1: Oh, I'm going to read Barbara's because it's a retrospective. It's from 10 years ago when Barbara visited and went on a walking tour of the city of New York. As we were walking up one of the streets, I realized there was an emptiness in the sky at the end of the street. So I knew where we were heading. Looking at the doors and cutouts of businesses along the way, I started to remember the accounts of the day and visualizing people having to duck into these areas to try and get out of the way of the dust and ash when the towers fell. When we arrived at the memorial site, emotions were running high as you see the names of all the civilians and first responders on the memorial. Flowers left on names to show it was that person's birthday. I found myself touching the memorial and the names, catching myself doing it. I then looked around and saw so many others doing the same this event was the trad this event was the tragedy that we all saw happen and in our own ways we're remembering and feeling what happened that day and the massive losses it is to this day one of the most profound experiences i have ever had thank you barbara
0: thank you very much indeed and um you know what i think we've got time here to read a couple of these so loren you take the winner I'm going to sneak this one in here, That another one that Greg grabbed. Uh, this listener says, on, 9-1, on 9-11, I was in Toronto looking after my mom, who had just come home from the hospital after suffering a heart attack. We were watching the morning news when they switched to the towers. They were showing the first tower after it was hit. Not long after, we saw the second plane fly into the second tower. It was so surreal. I couldn't believe it, and I didn't want to upset my mom, so we just watched it for a while. We didn't watch any more TV that day. I was able to get on one of the first flights out of Toronto back to Winnipeg because I wanted to get back to my family. My sister was able to look after my mom. We had to wait quite a long time for a flight from Ottawa to land. To get in the plane, we had to take all liquids, electronics, pens, scissors, anything sharp out of all of our bags. They would send them to us later. Once on the plane, with very few of us on board, we were given a meal with metal cutlery, and we all chuckled. As we were landing in Winnipeg, the plane suddenly started to rise. Captain said we had to try, and we landed on the second try because the airport was full of uh, military with guns and dogs. So th- at that time, I finally felt safe.
2: Yeah, so many things. That's another thing. The cutlery, you, you don't get that on the plane if you get a meal now. It's plastic, knives, and forks. Another one of the, it's a minor change, but just an example of all the things that they had to fix and do, and uh, pretty incredible story there. Uh, this... Final text comes from Linda, and it's amazing. Uh, Linda texted to say, Our friend's daughter, Gloria, worked on the second 72nd or 73rd floor of the first tower that was hit. Immediately, we were worried about her, but it was not until that afternoon that her family found out that she made it out. And later that day, family made it to her, her home in New Jersey. We phoned Gloria the next day, and she was hiding under the dining room table. The U.S. military planes were patrolling the skies. She told us that while people were trying to go down the narrow stairs, firemen with equipment and police were going up the stairs, and it took a long time to get out. Once she was out, Gloria then started running and was grabbed and pulled into a store just before the tower came down about a minute later. She also told us that while going down the stairs, the PA system was telling the workers to make it up to the roof where they would be rescued. Gloria worked at World Trade Center... Years earlier, when a bomb went off in the basement and her instinct was to get out, Gloria did receive the help she needed. That's from Linda. And wow, going down while others are going up.
0: And she made it out. And, and just to imagine the, the you know the image of her being pulled into a store just before the tower mm. comes down. Uh, just incredible. It must, it must have been so traumatic. So, Linda, thank you for giving us uh, some insight into that. And thanks to all. For sharing your memories and we'll be talking throughout the day on 680 CJOB and of course tomorrow uh, to mark the actual 20th anniversary of 9-11 mm-hmm. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb thank you very much for joining us this morning on the start question of the day this morning which appears, I don't think I actually hit publish on this one the question of the day is going to be, what did you think of Thursday night's leaders debate? And your options are solid debate. Second option is meh. Third option is children behave better. And fourth option, I watch tennis instead. Go, Layla. You can cast your vote, cjob.com. And right now, that's exactly what we want to talk about. We want to talk about how last night there were viewing choices galore. A plethora of viewing choices for Canadians. The leaders' debate, the first NFL game of the season, and a tennis match which led to a Canadian woman in the U.S. Open final for the second time, Greg, in three years.
1: Yes, and with the majority of the support inside Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York, Flushing Meadows to be uh, specific, and Canadian basketball legend Steve Nash is part of her entourage. 19-year-old Leila Fernandez has worked her way through to Saturday's women's final. The match will be up against one of... The biggest football games of the year in these parts, the banjo ball. It's going to be uh, another tough decision for some folks uh, tomorrow afternoon, Loren.
2: Yeah, so joining us to discuss both events, we have Christian Omel, host of the CGOB Sports Show. Christian, are you sure you don't want to talk about the debate instead? What debate? There was a debate <laughs> last night? 3% of our voters so far that said it was solid. A solid 3% wow. really liked it. So, so you
6: know, I'm 97% sure I made the right choice last night.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's good math. I like it, my friend. Let's talk about uh, Fernandez. I mean, uh, watching the game, the match last night, I just kept thinking to myself how easy she was making things look, but it was no easy run to the final for her. Tell us about uh, who she faces and, and how she got there.
6: Well, it's just an incredible story because going into this tournament, right, Bianca Andreescu is ranked sixth in the draw. We've got Canadian men ranked in the top 12, two of them. And Layla Fernandez is kind of an afterthought. She's a young player, 18, comes into this tournament, ranked 73rd in the world. And most people thought, OK, she might make the third round where she's going up against the defending champion Naomi Osaka. And then Osaka wins the first set, serves for the match in the second set. I've got it on my computer while I'm doing my show, and I'm like, ah, okay, well, she had a fun run. Next thing you know, she has this amazing ten-minute stretch where Osaka kind of falls apart, wins that match, goes on to beat a three-time major champion, then goes on to beat the number five player, and then last night beats the number two player. All of them in three sets she was up against the ropes a number of times just kept finding ways to get through just remarkable poise for someone who turned 19 this past monday and it's somebody that has an incredible amount of self-belief she was asked after the osaka match when did you think you could win this and she just kind of plainly said well b- before the match Like i thought i could win she legitimately believed this whole time she could win this tournament And now she's going to have a chance to on uh, Saturday, and obviously we're focused on the Canadian angle of this. The person she's playing against is an even crazier story. Her name is Emma Raducanu. She was born in Toronto, moved to the UK when she was two. Going into Wimbledon, she was ranked 338th in the world. She got a wild card into that tournament because she's local, made the fourth round, And then had to go through qualifiers at the U.S. Open. That means you got to win three matches against other people that aren't ranked super high. She went, gets through there. She hasn't lost a set the entire time. She makes it to the final. She's the first qualifier, men's or women's, to ever make a major final in singles play. She's the first British woman to reach a slam final in 44 years. None of her sets have really been all that close. And she's the youngest Grand Slam singles finalist since 2004. So you've got a battle of teenagers that we haven't seen since the late 90s when Martina Hingis played Serena Williams. But those were top-seeded players. They were, these two are 73rd and 150th in the world. And sometimes you think, oh, these kind of nobodies to be, to, you know, to, for a lot of people didn't know who these players were going in. This has been unreal for the tournament. So many people have been watching. The energy in that building has been, as Greg mentioned, just amazing. The question will be for me, who are they going to cheer for? Because you always cheer for the underdog. Yes. But when you got two underdogs going up against one <laughs> another, what's going to happen? I think they're just going to go nuts for every point for either player, and it's going to be uh, amazing to see. And, of course, it happens right during the Banjo Bowl, just like Bianca's final in 2019 when I tried to watch on my phone on the sideline, and then the data crapped out, and it was okay. But <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll I, maybe I'll just do the PVR thing to, uh, tomorrow and hope Bob doesn't mention the result on the air. But he will. That's now, guy.
0: now, one of the things that that caught me uh, about last night's match. And this probably isn't the most important thing, but I think a lot of people who may be just casual viewers like myself might have been confused because when I put the match on yesterday, I thought I was watching a replay of the quarterfinal okay. because they were both in the same outfits. But so I gather that her previous two contenders were, or opponents were on the same sponsorship team. And is, is Radu Kanu part of that same team as well?
6: Uh, so, Nike has a lot of sponsored players, and they have they usually have a, a couple different kits they're called for players to wear, and a lot of them are wearing the same ones. Uh, Sabalanka had a couple variants. There was like a, a – a, if you know the University of uh, – Queen's University in Kingston, the Golden Gales have kind of got yellow and blue. She was wearing that one for a few rounds, and then she wore the red and blue one last night that Svitolina also wore in the round before – Raducanu beat someone named Belinda Bencic, who was wearing the old yellow one. It, yeah, a lot of players wear the same outfits because if they're sponsored by Nike, uh, Kerber's Adidas, she was wearing uh, one that was very similar to what Maria Sockery wore last night. Boy, do I know a lot about tennis fashion. How about this?
2: <laughs> well, I, I was thinking uh, it was superstition.
6: <laughs> no, it's not. It's just... they <laughs> they give you an outfit. Here, here's yeah. an outfit. We're well, going to pay you for this.
0: Well, and thanks for answering the question because Greg and I had the same conversation this morning. Greg also thought he was watching. You thought, like, oh, it must have been uh, rain delay or something, right, Greg?
1: Yeah, I was watching a little <laughs> bit of the Mets game, the Mets Marlins game. and what? they. <laughs> I was desperate for something as I was waiting for the Bucks-Cowboys to start, and they mentioned the fact that it was raining in New York, and then I'd forgotten that they'd installed the retractable roof right. on Arthur Ashe, and so when I turned it on, I was like, oh, it's been delayed. And then I went through all the thought processes that Brett did and did some double-checking and go, oh, wait a minute, the player she played in the quarterfinals wasn't second-ranked. Uh, so uh, I sorted it out very quickly, but Brett and I were on the same page. We want to talk about the Canadian men and the mm-hmm. opportunity that Felix oje aliassim has to advance also to the men's final. He has a similar task as uh, Layla had last night.
6: Yeah, lost in all the Layla magic and the Raducanu magic is the fact that for the first time ever, and not just in the open era, there's often the qualifier of in the open era, that's 1968, ever, like that 1800s ever, for a Canadian man to make the semifinals of the U.S. Open singles draw. It's the first time it's ever happened. I don't like his chances, up against Daniil Medvedev just because Medvedev is far more established than Sabalenka is on the women's side. He's been to some major finals before he lost in the 2019 final. He lost in the 2021 Aussie open final. I just think it's a bad matchup for Felix, but it is still awesome that he's gotten this far and that matchup's coming up at uh, probably about two, two this afternoon. And if, if somehow Felix were able to pull this off and it would be, he's been playing very, very solid tennis, very, bold tennis he has not been like flashy emotional He's just been very business-like he'll go up against either Novak Djokovic or Alexander Zverev and uh, that's the top seed and the fourth seed it's all about Djokovic on the men's side if he wins this tournament he becomes the first player since 1969 on the men's side to win all four majors in one year he will it'll be his 21st major title which is more than any other man has ever won Breaking a tie right now, he has with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. So there's just so much history right now on Novak Djokovic's back, and I think that's the one thing that might be able to to beat him. It's not another player; it's the weight of history that might beat him. I don't think it's going to happen. He was just so surgical in his quarterfinal win. But if you know if Felix were able to get to the final and and face Djokovic, that's obviously such a huge moment for him. This is already a huge moment for him getting further than he ever has in his career. He's only 21, right? <laughs> The men's game has been dominated by dudes in their 30s for a while. So for him to get this far has been awesome, and we will watch and see what happens.
5: I
1: guess we should really quickly ask you about the Blue Bombers as they get ready for the sold-out Banjo Bowl tomorrow. Interesting for me, at least in my mind, uh, when the rosters come out later this morning, Christian, as to which players will not be in the lineup. For the Saskatchewan Roughriders, their defense was a little bit banged up, reportedly. It'll be interesting to see who suits up and who doesn't for the green and white.
6: Yeah, Ed Ganey and Luchez Purifoy were kind of in and out of possibility this week. At practice, Craig Dickinson the other day sounding pretty concerned that they weren't going to play. And this is a defense that is very good, but the Bombers was better on uh, this past Sunday. I mean, if the Bombers defense plays that way again, the pass rush gets after Cody Fajardo like that. There's not going to be much that any team and any offense can do against this defense this season, and we're looking for a a possible double-dip sweep here. How sweet would that be, Greg?
1: Uh, it hasn't happened since 2018, and it was the Rough Riders that did it with Zach Caleros at the helm for the Rough Riders, so that would be pretty sweet. Zach Caleros has never lost on Labor Day, and so maybe he's going to be 2-0 and on uh, Banjo Bowl Saturday as well. So we'll see how it all goes. Look forward to seeing you at the stadium tomorrow and uh, being part of the coverage with you tomorrow. Thanks, Christian.
6: No problem, guys. Love talking sports with you anytime.
0: Christian O'Mell, host of the CJOB Sports Show, Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 9. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think.